You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Lebanon Cedar is quietly back in running a cyber espionage campaign through vulnerable servers. Social engineering of vulnerability researchers is now attributed to the Lazarus Group. That solar winds incident is a lot bigger than solar winds. Notes on social media and the short squeeze. Verizon's Chris Novak looks at the changing landscape of ransomware payments. Our guest, Professor Brian Gant from Maryville University, examines cybersecurity threats of the new U.S. administration. And the GAO thinks the U.S. State Department should use data and evidence. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 29th, 2021. Clear Sky researchers have outlined cyber incursions they attribute to Lebanon Cedar, also known as Volatile Cedar. It's a threat actor in Lebanon, believed to be associated with the Hezbollah faction that operates from that country, although earlier reports from security company Checkpoint have reported seeing connections between the group and the government of Lebanon. In any case, the group is said to be motivated by political and ideological interests, and it casts a very large net in the information it collects. Lebanon Cedar has prospected targets in the United States, the United Kingdom, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority. Lebanon Cedar is using a new version of the explosive V4 RAT and the Caterpillar V2 web shell installed in vulnerable servers. Many of the victims were telecommunications providers, More than 250 servers were compromised in the campaign. ClearSky regards the use of the explosive rat as the smoking gun of attribution. As the firm puts it in their report, quote, We attributed the operation to Lebanese cedar, also known as volatile cedar, mainly based on the code overlaps between the 2015 variants of explosive rat and caterpillar web shell to the 2020 variants of these malicious files. We identified a high degree of similarity between the rat we identified to the original explosive rat. No one else, they say, uses it. Lebanon Cedar has been active since around 2012 and has acquired a reputation for circumspection, proving itself to be both unobtrusive and effective. It had been quiet for the last couple of years, but it's now apparently resurfaced. Microsoft has attributed the recently exposed long-con social engineering of vulnerability researchers to the North Korean group Microsoft calls Zinc and most others know as the Lazarus Group. To recap some background on the incident, 
This Monday, Google's threat analysis group reported that a North Korean threat actor had been engaged in a social engineering campaign that targeted vulnerability researchers. The campaign represented a significant advance in subtlety and craft on Pyongyang's part, a departure from the noisy smash-and-grab hacking so often attributed to the DPRK. The threat actors created research blogs and multiple Twitter persona that they used to discuss various publicly known vulnerabilities, often claiming successful development of -of proof-of-concept exploits. The register aptly called the campaign a long con. The goal was espionage and not the direct financial theft that's frequently the objective of North Korean cyber operations. As far as Microsoft's report is concerned, it confirms much of what Google's researchers had concluded about the threat actors' methods. Microsoft writes, quote, After building their reputation across their established social media accounts, the actors started approaching potential targets on social media platforms such as Twitter and LinkedIn. The conversations were often seemingly innocuous, asking security questions or talking about exploit techniques. If the researcher was responsive, the actor would offer to move communication to another platform, such as email or Discord, in some cases to then send files using encrypted or PGP-protected zips. End quote. Redmond provides a set of indicators of compromise, and they offer some advice for those who might be affected. Should you have visited one of the blogs owned and operated by Zinc, Microsoft's report has a list of them, You'll do well to run a full anti-malware scan and use the provided IOCs to check your systems for intrusion. If you find any of Zinc's malware, assume your system is fully compromised and rebuild it. To avoid being hit by something like this, Microsoft advises security professionals to use a virtual machine when they're building untrusted projects in Visual Studio or when they're opening links or files sent by parties unknown. The Wall Street Journal reports that the threat actor behind the SolarWinds supply chain compromise, probably a Russian intelligence service, will touch a very large number of victims. About a third of those affected by the incident don't use the afflicted SolarWinds Orion platform. CRN quotes industry sources to the effect that there's no finish line for cleaning up after this campaign. Acting CISA Director Wales said, according to the journal, that the attackers gained access to their targets in a variety of ways. This adversary has been creative. It is absolutely correct that this campaign should not be thought of as the SolarWinds campaign, end quote. That is, this particular huggy bear was patient and foxy, knowing many things as opposed to just one big thing. The threat actor was able to move from one cloud to another, exploiting small features of the various ways software authenticates itself on the Microsoft service. If you remember other similar attacks against cloud services, notably China's 2016 Cloud Hopper Industrial Espionage Campaign, and think that this is the same old thing, that seems not to be the case. CISA doesn't think so, at least. Acting Director Wales said the Solorigate campaign was substantially more significant than Cloud Hopper. The journal quotes him as saying, We continue to maintain that this is an espionage campaign designed for long-term intelligence collection. That said, when you compromise an agency's authentication infrastructure, there is a lot of damage you could do. After some retail trading platforms, notably the ironically named Robinhood, suspended, then resumed trading in GameStop and a few other heavily shorted stocks, It remains unclear what the self-organized social media book talkers did that was illegal, 
if indeed it was anything at all. Criticism of the trading suspensions was in the U.S. surprisingly bipartisan, CNBC says, with left- and right-wing members of Congress seeing no crime in retail investors winning their bets at the expense of hedge funds' wagers. It's a novel phenomenon, and the SEC is seeking understanding. Robinhood is getting killed in online reviews by a whole lot of people who think its app is more like the kind of thing the sheriff of Nottingham would run on behalf of Prince John. The U.S. Government Accountability Officer recommends that the State Department rethink its plans for a cybersecurity bureau. It's not a bad idea, says the GAO, but Foggy Bottom needs to think its plans through. GAO's report says, quote, The United States faces expanding cyber threats and the challenge of building international consensus on standards for acceptable state behavior in cyberspace, end quote. It would like to see more data and evidence that would support the State Department's presumed belief that a new bureau could identify objectives and meet them. Quote, Without developing evidence to support its proposal for the new bureau, State lacks needed assurance that the proposal will effectively set priorities and allocate appropriate resources for the bureau to achieve its intended goals. End quote. So go get them some data and evidence. Who could object to that? Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire.
Professor Brian Gant is an instructor of cybersecurity at Maryville University. Prior to his teaching career, he served in both the FBI and the Secret Service, protecting the Clinton administration from both physical and cyber threats. Dr. Gant joins us with thoughts on the challenges President Biden and his team face as they bring their cyber strategies into focus. Well, as he uh, comes into office, you know, uh, with the unfortunate events that happened at the uh, Capitol with the Capitol breach, uh, I think uh, national security and domestic terrorism should be uh, the items, you know, hit in the forefront, you know, as he as he comes into office. Attackers or, or threat actors, as we call them in the cybersecurity world, their main objective may be to just demonstrate um, that the U.S. is in chaos um, in, in terms of um, you know, the different groups between the uh, left and the right, a lot of the uh, domestic uh, terrorism that's occurring, militias and, and things of that nature. And they may just want to seek to... Um, attack national news outlets like CNN or Fox News, or they may go after government websites, uh, OPM, DOD, uh, White House websites, things of that nature, to cause any kind of disruption, knowing that the uh, the Capitol insurrection uh, was successful and, and just seeing that the disruption that it caused. What is your expectation here? Are you hopeful that um, that... President Biden is going to have a, a good handle on this. That the, from what you've seen as an observer, the the team, the names that he's mentioning, is this uh, is this cause for uh, uh, cause for hope? Yeah, it's definitely cause for hope. Uh, it seems as though his experience um, as a, a former vice president will kind of give him a, a leg up on um, you know those intel briefings and reaching out to uh, local, federal, and state partners to see what he can do to uh, not only beef up the physical, but also the cybersecurity presence of of this country. I was fortunate enough to guard President, uh, Vice President Biden uh, during my time as a Secret Service agent, and uh, he was known to be very adept at you know reading those uh, intel subcommittee reports from Congress. And, uh, and acting on them where, where need to be. So just in what I've seen in the last four or five days in terms of the number of National Guard troops and number of law enforcement officials who will be on hand and and uh, this, you know, the inauguration is considered an NSSE event, which is a national security event. So the, the impact and the ramping up of incident uh, management it's uh, much easier uh, when you have it that NSSE designation. You know, it's interesting when when we had the the riot at the Capitol. Um, it was really a, an intersection of, of physical security and cybersecurity, but particularly in that you know the way that um, some of those computer systems were uh, accessed. You know, people didn't have time to log out of machines, and we even have reports of some machines uh, possibly being stolen. Now, it strikes me with your background, having been with the FBI and then also the, the Secret Service, that, um, you know, that intersection of, of physical security is uh, something that's within your experience that perhaps a lot of folks in cyber don't always think about. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, Cybersecurity and, and physical security go hand in hand. And it's one of the things that I tell my students here at the, at the university. Uh, you may think that uh, they are two separate departments, but 
the liaison between the two, the better relationship you have um, with your physical security department and understanding physical security access uh, to critical infrastructures and things of that nature, the better job you'll have at uh, layers of protection. Um, Security is all about layers. Um, And that's one thing that the Capitol did not have. It did not have those protective rings. It did not have the physical bike rack pushed out far enough. Uh, It did not have the additional physical presence of uh, National Guard troops or law enforcement officers surrounding that ring. And uh, sometimes it's just as simple as uh, putting a physical body outside of a a server closet um, that houses some protective information. So, you know, understanding the correlation between the the two and accepting it um, will only enhance your security plan. That's Professor Brian Gant from Maryville University. There is a lot more to our interview. Don't forget to go listen to extended versions of this and many other interviews at CyberWire Pro. It's on our website, thecyberwire.com. I'm pleased to be joined once again by Chris Novak. He is the Global Director for Verizon's Threat Research Advisory Center. Uh, Chris, it is always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch today on ransomware and some of the things that you and your team are tracking when it comes to the evolution of ransomware, what you're seeing on the on the payment side and with ransomware in general. What can you share with us today? Yeah, thanks, uh, Dave. Great to be back. And it's interesting because this is an area of research that we've done for quite a bit of time. You know, we've been looking at ransomware and it's it's kind of almost, um, I don't know if I want to say comical because it's so bad at the same time. But when we first started doing research into the area of ransomware many, many years ago, it was kind of one of those, hey, we should keep an eye on this. This might actually become something, but right now <laughs> we're not really seeing all that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then as, as the years went on, we kind of saw it go from not making our top 10 list to rapidly moving up the list to now where it is, you know, essentially at the top of the charts in terms of the commonality of it. And, you know, one of the things that we keep seeing is, especially when we look at some of, you know, like uh, federal agencies and, and public sector you know, we're seeing a, a fair bit of attacks against them, as well as obviously also um, the, the private sector. But, you know, if you look at that and you see, you know, we, we surveyed a, a number of federal agencies and about 30 percent of them um, had responded that they had fallen victim to ransomware attack. And again, you know, I think there's some number of these that, you know, like many attacks that may be underreported. But the the landscape there is changing dramatically because we're also seeing all of this being um, complicated further by things like COVID, where we're seeing that as being used as a a foothold or an attractant to say, hey, you know, how do we uh, get people to click on a link? How do we get people to download something? How do we get people to share information? We tell them we have masks, we have tests, we have vaccines, we have, you know, and all sorts of crazy things that we'll see. But if we look at kind of the terminology of all the different things in various, you know, social engineering campaigns, we're seeing that that is is very high on the list of what they're using these days in terms of COVID-related scams to get a foothold to deploy the ransomware. And then the other thing I'd also say that's kind of a, a complicating factor that we're seeing on the rise is, do you pay or do you not? Right, right. Yeah, and I was going to, that's where I was going to go next with you because, you know, the, 
At the outset, the initial advice from folks like the FBI and and uh, sort of you know uh, across the landscape was don't pay the ransom. You're only encouraging mm-hmm. them, and so on and so forth. But now it seems to me like the it's more complicated than that. People have insurance, um, <laughs> uh, and the dollar amounts, the 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 ability to restore, even if you have backups. I mean, it's it's not so cut and dry these days. Yeah, you're you're a hundred percent right on that. You know, a lot of times I get that question of, you know, what should we do? And I'm like, look, I'll give you as much advice and guidance based on past experience of what I've seen happen elsewhere. But at the end of the day, every everybody needs to make their own decision, right? It's like your own personal self. You need to ultimately decide what you're gonna do. And and it, it's interesting because when we look at that, you know, one, there's the possibility of, hey, if you pay, does that make you an interesting target? Doesn't mean someone else is going to come after you because they know you're likely to pay. Or mm. in some cases, you mentioned cyber insurance. We're actually seeing attackers getting wise to the fact that, hey, you know what? If you have insurance, well, heck, you're not even going to, quote, feel this, right? You know, and, and you know, there's the, you know, everyone likes to talk about, you know, when insurance pays, you know, people kind of refer to it as a victimless crime. And I uh, would imagine the insurance companies would would beg to differ. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but that is obviously playing into their calculus now of, well, if more organizations have insurance and we can get that to pay, then let's go ahead and ask for larger ransoms. Or in some cases, even trying to figure out what coverage limits an organization might have in order to figure out how much they should ask for. And and it gets even more complicated than that is in some cases you pay the ransom, you don't necessarily get your data back or it doesn't necessarily stop them from publishing it, right? You're At the end of the day, you're you're still dealing with criminals here. What's what's your sense for the near horizon? I mean, is it the way that things stand right now? Is that is that pretty much the state of things? Are we kind of in in equilibrium? You know, with it's hard to know if things are getting better or worse, but it seems certain that for the moment they're here to stay. Yeah, I'd say that that's a fairly accurate assessment of it. I would say that we are probably. I would say we're at a steady state. I think it's not getting horribly worse, but I don't think it's getting dramatically better at the same time. And I think. Part of it is organizations are still trying to figure out what is the right thing to do. Mm. The one thing that I am happy to see, if you will, is that we're seeing more and more requests for organizations wanting to do things like establish a ransomware playbook or do things like um, ransomware simulations so they can understand if something like this were to happen, what it might be like and how their response might hold up. Because I think that's an issue that a lot of organizations tend to feel like, hey, you know, as crazy as it may sound, some of them are still kind of flying by the seat of their pants in terms of what are we going to do if this happens? And then once it happens, all of a sudden they realize, you know, we have to shut down the office because nothing works. What are we going to do? And I mean, I've even seen some organizations that they've said, hey, we're not worried. We've got great backups. And then I'll ask, well, when was the last time you did a ransomware situation? Because this is not just let's restore one PC from backup, right? This could be dozens, hundreds, thousands, who knows? Have you ever actually done a ransomware simulation? Because the thing I've seen happen is organizations just trust that they have backups and then they go to do the restore and they realize, oh my God, this is going to take us weeks to right. restore this data. And all of a sudden they're like, wow, this this may not actually be less expensive than paying the ransom. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Chris Novak, thanks for joining us. You bet. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Spread a little sunshine. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. If you're wondering what to do with yourself this weekend, well, take some time and check out Research Saturday. My conversation with Yonatan Stream Amit, he's from Cyber Reason's Nocturnus Research Team. We're going to be focusing on their work on the Kimsuki Cyber Espionage Group. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Guru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Errol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.